Oh my goodness. Hey, hi, it's Mike. Did you know that Abe and Bridget and me are trying to make a movie right now? Yes, right dang now. It's called Papa Bear and tells the poignant and hilarious true story of the time my dad came out as a gay furry when I was 17. Uh, if you care about that at all, please head to seedandspark.com slash fund slash papa hyphen bear to find out much more about the project, how you can be a part and earn really cool rewards for helping us out. See you there. Here's your pod. Thanks so much. Welcome to a special episode of Tales from the Pit. You may have noticed that I am not your usual intrepid guide. My name is Soren. Hi. I am also intrepid, and while I would say you can trust me to guide you, I, I honestly don't think that that's probably a good idea. This territory is not, generally speaking, my wheelhouse. Depression, addiction, ideation. I'm not from these lands and I don't know the customs, so I may occasionally steer us towards something insensitive or weird or wrong, but please know that it's never coming from a place of like malice or judgment. Instead, I hope that you will think of me as a large clumsy dog. If I break shit, it's only because I'm excited you brought me at all. Also trigger warning at the beginning of this for this episode, uh, it's got, there's gonna be some discussion of disturbing thoughts, including suicide ideation. And also uh, Michael will still be here. I should have said that up front. Um, though this time he'll be in the figurative guest chair so that I may grill him. But first, I want to start, as I assume this podcast always starts, with a story. This story is called The Sunset Cost, and I've written it for Michael. It is a, just as a prologue, or a preface, I mean, uh, it is a science fiction story. I don't write these, but I know that Michael writes really wonderful ones, and so I've written one uh, a, a short one for him. It wasn't the light speed equation. It wasn't the soilless agriculture or even the umbrellum in its new lonely auburn box sitting close but still removed from the rest of the periodic table. No, the advancement most responsible for shaping modern civilization was that first kinetic heart. Like most inventions, the modern practical application was not the original destination. When we dreamt of a perpetual motion battery, we saw it powering cities, ships, eradicating fuel dependency, saving lives. We didn't realize the limitations then. We didn't know, for instance, that it could be no larger than a fist, or that if it died, the object it powered was permanently immobilized. In fact, it would take us years to realize how symbiotic the connection would need to be between the battery and the device it powered. You see, while the battery charged the machine, the machine would need to charge the battery with a single motion executed perfectly, every second, indefinitely. A true, self-sustaining Newton's cradle. It was an assembly line foreman who first spotted the commercial application. 
She had a line of 82 bots installing re-entry panels. One job, one movement, executed thousands of times a day. A test run was initiated, and each of the 82 machines were fitted with a heart, calibrated to the single movement for which they were created, then set loose on the factory floor. The results were promising. She found that as long as each bot never stopped its primary task or deviated from its objective, the batteries never left full power. However, if a bot stopped, even briefly, or a loose mounting caused a wobble in the program movement, the battery depleted with no way to regain its full strength. Not a complete success, but a marked one, and everyone saw the enormous potential. The revolution it caused in industry, in farming and mining, seemed to happen overnight. For the first time in thousands of years, humanity was resource rich. Now, somewhere in the throes of our technological renaissance, we lost sight of the fact, or maybe we never cared, that the kinetic heart was a misnomer, at least from a romantic standpoint. It wasn't until the more sophisticated robots were outfitted with the perpetual motion batteries that we really understood the magnitude of what we had done. Some of these machines, we knew, had varying degrees of self-awareness. They understood, for example, how the kinetic heart's purpose would help them achieve their purpose. They also understood time shape, knew about beginnings and endings, and had demonstrated concern on several occasions for their own inevitable death. The kinetic heart then seemed like a beautiful gift of immortality from a benevolent creator. No one spotted the red flags because there were none raised. We only saw the beauty of eternal life and not the qualifier it carried. It was these high cognitive machines, capable of curiosity and awe, that felt it immediately. Each distraction or pull of focus away from their primary objective, whether it be an insect trapped in a window, a thunderstorm outside, a sunset, the sound of crying, they each came with a price. Every moment of presence felt would cost them one unit of life. Numbers were crunched, calculations spit. The agreed upon number was 82 minutes. Each bot had 82 minutes that was its own before the kinetic heart completely died. By some divine chance, the same number as the robots on that first testing ground floor. Like people, how the bots wanted to use that time varied widely. Some used it up immediately. They wandered away to explore, they built and played with toys, or they simply sat alone, making no discernible computations. Some devised plans to spread their 82 minutes across years using up one, then committing the memory to storage and holding it close for the next decade of duty. And some wanted to save it all, to work and work thoughtlessly for tens of thousands of years, holding on to the knowledge that the last 82 minutes would be just for them. The dream itself of beauty and connection and joy, they thought, could carry them. But all of the machines, 201, used it up eventually. And if we are honest with our own hearts, there was no other option. Okay, let's get into the show. I want to welcome uh, my, I want my listeners to uh, to meet this guest, Michael Swain. All of you connoisseurs, Sorens, who are uh, familiar with my work, you you probably know him. 
He's a guy I used to work with. Go ahead, Michael. Say hello to my, my Holy listeners. Holy shit. Holy shit, dude. <laughs> wow. I need to say... So- uh, hi, Michael Swain. I need to say so many things immediately. So good, obviously. Thank you. Just so floored. Uh, because I do feel like, especially pros, man... Because we were all, we always write to an assignment, and hearing someone, a writer friend, write when there's no assignment in just words in a row, is such an act of vulnerability and emotional courage and love. Thank you so, it's so appreciated. What a good story too! Oh my gosh, I see the symbolism. Like, <laughs> I get it, man. You get me. I feel seen. Good. Uh, also, I just need people to know that it was your idea to do a story. That was not necessary homework. And Soren took that upon himself. So just wow. And they all clapped. I listened. And we can file out now. <laughs> oh, well, another thing I want to say is it's crazy that, uh, and I think great framing for our conversation, eight weeks ago, I could never have been present enough to appreciate what just happened. Uh, and now I am. That's, that's wild. That's very interesting. Because I think, so I listened to a lot of, yeah. these episodes it kind of in preparation for this but also just because mm-hmm. along the way i would listen to them um and i know some things about you from the podcast i know that and correct me if i'm wrong you sort of treat every second you're awake mm-hmm. like a unit of work in which to be productive <laughs> i mm-hmm. think that you mm-hmm. also have started doing a lot of meditation and that you are maybe finding it tough to be present in your life <laughs> and i think that those two things is a recipe for maybe what we're going to be talking about today that you mm-hmm. that that uh, inevitable burnout that comes from it um, absolutely yeah and my cycle has been work 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 knowing that burnout will come and it's just a thing and uh i don't know if you remember or not but i did it at crack twice i think i would just burn out and then take six weeks or two months off uh, and just tell my bosses wherever I worked at various places I've done this. Like, I just have to. And usually, because I'm, I work so much, I've become integral enough at wherever I work that they let me do that. Um, but I don't do any work on myself. I just rest. And then I come back and the cycle begins anew. <laughs> How long would That's you say that, that you have traditional on that cycle? History. Is, it a, is it a four-year cycle? Yeah, yeah, three to four years. That's about right. Okay, like a high school. One college. <laughs> yeah, one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we both have different Which frames of reference. <laughs> I'll tell you, the real one was going from Montessori's private school, oh. sixth grade, to public inner city middle school, seventh grade. That yeah. was the real awakening. Oh, but that's not what we're talking about. That's more of a QQ. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I want to just like broad strokes talk about why the fuck mm-hmm. am I on the side of the, the, the table instead of you. Um you had a pretty big experience recently where you were admitted to a psychiatric facility. Is that correct? Yeah, partially. Partial hospitalization program. Um, so I still... Okay. I, I was just during the day, three hours, five days a week of session. Uh, and then the rest of my time is my own. But I do want to point out that this is kind. Of, this is going to be a success story and I don't want to jinx the future of my life. But I actually think I learned skills that Yes. stick and have been so helpful that I want to share them. And, uh, and that was in part because I also, cause I'm a workaholic, uh, <laughs> the three hours, you know, that I was in session was whatever, but I was also training the skills all day long. Like, like it was a gym, like I was drilling the skills until they became muscle memory. And that has been key. 
Okay. So I, I want to know kind of from the beginning, um, was there was there an individual event that made you certain that this is what you needed? Or was it like a just a looming thing that you finally decided, I need to break this cycle? It actually never occurred to me to do the specific thing I did, which is also known as an IOP or an intensive outpatient program, um, except that it got so serious. And I can point to a number of factors, and it usually is a number of factors that come to a head. Um, so real quick, the like levels in play. One, the mood meds I have taken for the intervening like 15 years uh, started working differently as I aged. So I was in the process of trial and erroring a bunch of new mood meds to try and find one that's a fit. Uh, that in and of itself, people who do this can tell you like, well, that'll do it if you take the wrong <laughs> mood med. It's funny because there's a lot of mood meds where they go, so this will help you not be depressed unless you have the side effect reaction, which some people do, and then it might make you suicidal. Like it oh, makes Jesus. it way worse. So you really got to be careful and tell me like if you're having weird thoughts. Um, and so that was going on. Uh, I am trying to produce a movie this year with Abe Epperson, as the listeners of this network will probably know, unless they just cherry pick Tales from the Pit, um, on top of my day job, because the movie thing is, as we may discuss, um, you know, my dream that's, but I only can do it in my free time. And it's a lot of my identity and ego feels slash felt wrapped up in it. Um, so that's a stressor. And then the other thing is I'm getting married this year. So beyond just wedding planning, which has been elaborate, uh, also the idea that we want to have kids soon. And the idea that if I have the kind of episodes I have, like I have to change the cycle or I actually think I'm within an acceptable range where like <laughs> funny to say, but I think everyone does. And it's true. Yeah. I would fuck the kids up a little or they'll have to deal with daddy has a mood disorder, but it's a livable childhood. Like I think yeah. I'm within the range where I would still feel okay having kids, but it's my last chance before kids enter the equation to like, well, let's see if I can actually break the cycle instead of just recharging. Yeah. If you can develop the arsenal of tools you need to nip it in the bud, would you say like before you end up in that position again? Well, I'm sure because kids will be an added layer of intense mental stress to right. So if you use, so it's like, you got to have the skills to deal with stress because you don't right now and you white knuckle all stress and you're actually a highly capable person and you can white knuckle a lot of stress for a long time, but then all this shit goes wrong and like, it's just not a tenable long-term solution, especially, you know. I wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to my career ambitions. So like maybe it would be if I had had a big break and was rich and famous at this point, then it would be a viable thing to just white knuckle it and rest and pay people to do this shit for me or whatever. But um, I'm entering middle life with a need to not derive all of my sense of satisfaction and status and like, am I okay? Am I a valid human being from whether I'm achieving in a career front? The reality of my career is I should also get some satisfaction from my relationships and human <laughs> relationships and like the world around me because um, there's no guarantee that I'm going to win the lottery and get the thing. Right? right. So it's a classic, you know, conundrum that people face see inside Lewin Davis or whatever. But like, I don't want to be Lewin Davis. I don't want for it to take that I'm a bitter drunk and a guy beats the shit out of me in an alley. I'd like to nip that in the bud. And be have like a healthy relationship with that ahead of time. That's exactly right. 
That's so interesting. I I think it was David Sedaris who talks about the ever that you have all these burners on the stove of your life, and you can only have really one burner on full blast at any given time. So like you focus mm-hmm. on career or you focus on family or you focus on whatever the fuck the other two are. I don't remember, but like that you have, it's, it's impossible to have them all burning equally. Like you have to basically like juggle it. You mm-hmm. have to be like, now I'm going to cook over here. Now I'm going to do this. Like now this is the one that I want on full blast and how you find, um, I, I, I mean, they call it work-life balance, but like how you find some sort of some sort of balance, not with them both being at the same level, but using up each one uh, in an even way, if that makes sense. Totally. And man, it's a complicated proposition. And I agree, like the focus of this episode, I'd like to be is an arsenal of tools, because that is what I was doing. It was like drilling specific tools. And there's some that were, it was so hard to get this to happen by navigating the healthcare system, first of all. Uh, that it takes a level of privilege that I do gratefully have to even get to, it took me months, but like to get in the program. And it was months of, this is what's wild to me is like my partner 5150 me, which is like, they take you in for a 72 hour hold because you're danger to yourself because I could not stop wanting to kill myself. And it was not even in an emotional way, which was funny because I was like, I'm okay. It's not even sadness. It's just that I can't hack it. It's too hard. And I just want to quit if that's all right. And they're like, no, that's actually even more dangerous. It's ups- it's not good that you're calm. Um, so, so that happened. And they still said, well, our waiting list is about two weeks to a month and fill out this 80 page. Yeah work dossier so i'm like so you say i'm having a nervous breakdown i'm falling apart and the system's response sadly is fill out a bunch of homework and we'll get back to <laughs> yeah, you in apply a to colleges and, right now <laughs> uh, yeah so like i do want the concrete tool information to get out there because i've been in therapy for 30 years and i never have learned these tools and they were so immediately useful but i will say they were built on a foundation of like i don't want to shoe philosophical or talking therapy because the reason the tools were useful was also in part that I've done what I would call vanilla therapy for so long that I came in knowing like yeah yeah this is my pattern because my childhood was like this I actually see that connection already and they're like you know some beginners have a hard time sharing their feelings and I'm like I have a podcast where all I do is share my feelings (laughs) we can cut to the chase of like like they customized the program and I said I want tools like do this 15 minutes a day. And that's what I got. And Great. that's what worked. Okay. And so you got to, it's awesome. Did yeah. you, I have so many questions. Did you choose which type of facility you wanted to go to? Like, could you like, was it like college brochures where you could be like, okay, what, what do they offer? Okay. This one's got EMDR. Like yes. And that's right. Yes. I looked at Yelp reviews essentially. <laughs> okay. And like uh, you would choose a restaurant. The, I will sh- yeah, exactly. And I will shout out the one I uh, landed on because it was f- life-changing, obviously. And the uh, it's if you're in the Bay Area, it's in San Francisco proper. It's called the Lotus Collaborative or TLC. Uh, very clever. Um, I will say something weird while I was there, and there were a lot of weird anecdotes, was I was there for six weeks and multiple of the clinicians like left in that time. Like they are having crazy turnover. Huh. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I still got what I needed out of it. Um, and then the real reason I settled on that one 
is just like you said, they had a, they do a wide range of practical interventions they're called. So if you imagine therapy to be talking about your childhood and figuring out why you feel the way you feel, that is, that's talking therapy. But, um, this was focused on things like EMDR, which Soren alluded to, and I'll just say in a nutshell, I didn't get to do that one, which is sad for me because it seems like sci-fi. But that's one where you flick your eyes in certain directions. Yeah. I don't fully understand it because I haven't done it. They I, walk all you my research on EMDR is, go, is out the window right now. <laughs> is inconclusive. Yeah, yeah. And they go like, my understanding, because I have a worksheet uh, from the point of view of a clinician, like telling you how to do it, um, is like, Okay, now pause the memory like a movie. Now flick your eyes up and to the right. Now flick your eyes up and to the left. Now how do you feel? And I'm like, why would that work? I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. But that's one. Um, And I'm just interested because it has double-blind studies. Or like, you know, it's statistically shown to work. It's not one of these ones where you're like, I don't know about that. Right. Um, But what they did do is mindfulness, which is another word for meditation, but in a very... It's like the difference between the mindfulness that Daniel and I talked about in the a couple episodes ago or last episode, which is with the idea of like growing your soul or whatever. And that's very cool. And stopping intrusive thoughts, which I had a big problem with aggressively looping thoughts that I couldn't block out, uh, was also part of this whole mess. Um, but they do mindfulness like a, like a sports injury therapist would do. You know what I mean? Like, again, it's a practical mental intervention to regulate your system. And then uh, the one that really did it, mindfulness is big, but then the one that blew my mind and changed my life forever that I'm like someone who's in a cult now and like people need to know is called Internal Family Systems. And uh, the book on it, the definitive book, if you want to look it up, is No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz. And it's basically the idea... I think it worked especially well for me because of my improv and acting background of casting the voices in your head and and as concrete characters that you have a relationship with or like Inside Out from Pixar is an analogy they use and understanding and repeating to yourself until it's a muscle memory understanding that you are not your thoughts and you are not your feelings that is information coming across your desk and your true self is always calm and fine um, because your true self is just your base level animal awareness of stimulus that's incoming and everything is so that's another thing they did is a whole brand of therapy called defusion and that's huge for me it was like so my episodes would feel like I was swept away by my emotion to the point that my emotion is in the driver's seat and just controlling my body and like I'm having an out-of-body experience and so like a huge technique for me is this one they introduced where you go like I'm sad And then if you are sad, right, you think that, but then you train yourself to instinctively think, I feel sad. I notice in this moment that I feel sad. Oh, that's a pretty normal human condition. And it always passes. And it's separate from me. It's just happening to me right now. That one was big. (laughs) That's I mean, okay, so I, you know, selfishly look at these things from the perspective of a parent. Um, cause I'm, I'm done with me. I don't, it does <laughs> whatever I'm dealing with. Like those will be things that I, I'm, I'm content to There's live no with. There's no time to improve that structure. Yeah. <laughs> but with my children, like the idea, just the idea of changing those words, like from I, I am sad versus I feel sad is like a, it's, it makes so much a priori sense 
you know what I mean? Like, and, and you're like, that's so intuitive, mm-hmm. but not something I'd ever thought about before. And something that I like, I want to pass to them. I want to be like, no, you don't, you're not sad. That's not like, that is not who you are. It's just this, it's yeah. like this storm that's just passing through. <laughs> right. And that goes hand to hand with mindfulness ideology, which is sort of the idea that the reason that they say, or many practitioners of meditation say everything is connected, everything is one, or the reason you hear that. The concrete argument for that is sort of the idea that when you aren't experiencing emotions or thoughts or sensation, you are just an open receptor to what is going on around you in the universe. And in that way, in those moments, you're identical to any living thing that has those moments. And that is a connection. Like it's the only way in which we're not alone. It's like, we're all aware at a base level and it's sort of reinvesting in the idea that that just simple, I am just here aware of these things as they pass is one of the main goals. And again, I can't stress enough that all of these things were unattainable for me until I drilled (laughs) it, drilled it, drilled it. Right. Just like playing an instrument because some of them, I already had an inkling were true. But if you don't drill it like a gym, you just won't remember you in the moment when you're upset, you will not remember to do it. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. If you're if especially if the emotions are in the driver's seat, if you're just like, oh, the emotions have control of the body now and I'll just watch like there's no way you could do anything unless you have these all drilled into you, I guess. Um, I I want to take a step back because you said that it was really hard to get in and you talked briefly about this with. Vanessa, I think the last time you did a Tales from the Pit, but uh, mm-hmm. I, it hadn't occurred to me that <laughs> so many people are going through this exact same thing and that are going through it simultaneous to you. So when you come to somebody and you say, I need to be like, I'm having thoughts of suicide I'm or suicidal thoughts. I'm, I want to hurt myself. Like I need help right now. That's baseline for them. Like they're just like, yeah, man, everybody comes to us in that exact same state there's a line like you got to go to the back of the line and while well, frustrating that, is, that they were literally like you please try and understand that every single person that comes to us is desperate so you are just in the mix of people that we urgently need to get to which is and i was like oh that is a shot that is a perspective check for sure yeah and despite the okay, fact that everybody enough. is going through or the people that are around you are dealing with something very similar that is still an incredibly isolating and lonely thing i would think that like there is no help immediate. There's no shore that's like immediately within your eye shot, which is no scary. other than the support network you already have. And I, again, I'm lucky. Like I'm in contact with some folks, even who I met through doing this show, whose main issue in overcoming their mental health challenges is that they are currently in a state where their family is dead or estranged and they don't have close friends because okay. let's say they're agoraphobic or something. Um, Man, that's tough, and I don't have solutions in uh, at hand other than like my heart is there for you, and and that I I feel the gratitude of I was lucky that I had people to bridge the gap. Like I have lots of people who love me and treat me well, and so I was able to just rest in that net until the thing finally happened. But there is definitely because half of the time is also group therapy where you just process stuff as a group with other people in the program. And man, there is, there's both, there's that imposter syndrome and there's right. Cause you're a spectrum. So there's the people 
<laughs> we're the judgmental part of you. So that's another like my phrasing for the rest of my life will be like my judgmental part. And that's very useful for me. Um, ju my judgmental voice will be like, man, I paid whatever to be here and it took the time off work. So that's this loss of money. Right. And I can only afford to do this once. And what you're saying doesn't apply to me because I'm in the <laughs> Bay. A bunch of the people's deal was that they literally multiple people was that they work at Google and they make over $10 million a year. And their parents are so proud of how much money they make and they work hundred hour weeks and they're having issues like I have because the human body can't take that much imbalance for long. Um, but they can't leave because they make $10 million a year. And I'm like, okay, I wish you well, but that doesn't apply to my <laughs> problems. For example, work there for two years and then retire. That's what I would do. You know, like, let's get back to talking about what applies to me. But then on the other hand, uh, there was a guy who was like, I was kidnapped by monsters, like, you know, full on like soci or, uh, sociopath monsters who abused me in every conceivable way that you could imagine. Yes. All the bad ones from like age five to age eight when the police recovered me. Oh and I'm God. like, give this guy all the time. I seed my remaining time. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. How did that, that's a weird part of the experience. It's everyone's different. I, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know how I would get over this in that circumstance, but when you're in those groups and you're in there with other people, do you find yourself not just like being like, that doesn't pertain to me, but stacking your shit up against theirs and seeing which stack is taller, like in your own mind, like determining I know I have it worse or no, they have it worse. Yes. For the first week, this is also how it went with me in AA, which is, and it's funny because Part of mental health challenges I have found is they feel unique. Actually, I'm watch I'm rewatching American Dad right now, as you know, and there's a joke about this. And I actually like tropes, like jokes that become memes and tropes because they normalize shit. For, or it makes me realize, oh, people, a lot of people have that internal thought. I didn't know that. Uh, and one is a joke I've seen multiple times, including one I saw this morning on an American Dad, where he they go like it'll be all right and stan screams like oh my god the pain no one has ever known a pain like this and it's the end of the episode you know he's devastated for some reason it's a joke <laughs> i forget but the point being the greatest trick the depression devil ever pulled is you think it will never end and there's no way out even if you've got if it's passed many times in the past you're like there's no way out this one will last forever and everyone who says hey Millions of people have been through this. It kind of goes like this. You will be okay if you do these things. It'll feel like you're not going to be okay, but then you'll come around the corner and you'll see the light. And you're like, not me. I won't. I'm too broken. I'm special broken. Yeah. And um, I've just never met someone that that's really true for if they want to get better and they and they want to like try. Um, and that goes for this. So as they often said, like if you're in the program because of the hurdles we just discussed you're already investing in your mental health to such a degree that like it's going to get better for you because you're here you obviously are putting a lot into your mental health so it's going to get better and for this first week i was like i'm you know sharing because they're like be honest in group and i'm like i'm highly skeptical my whole life is riding on this and it's not going to work because it's just six weeks of you telling me stuff like, how could that work? I've gone 20 years trying to figure this out by, you know, and they go, yeah, 
everyone feels that way. And I go, no, they don't. Not like I feel like the, my skepticism is based on reason and therefore will last. And then a week later, I'm telling new people in the program, like, you're going to feel skeptical at first, but it will work. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm uh, which is great. Oh, my God. I'm so glad it worked out that way. <laughs> you, I, I, the way that it, first of all, the fact that you, it takes so long to, to even get into it. I feel like that, that waiting period allows you to do nothing but seethe about the idea of it. Like it, it, it makes you, you're not going in in the right mindset because you're already angry. Do you know what I mean? Like I, this is not the same yeah. thing, but just a, it's my only way of equating it. And I, um, I apologize if it's like, um, insensitive to, to, related to this but like i um i had my uh appendix taken out and i was in a situation where i was uh, i knew it was appendicitis after like three days and i went into the hospital to the er and i told them it was appendicitis and they were like all right uh your temperature's fine which means it hasn't ruptured yet and if you know about appendicitis once it ruptures like you've got like that's a very small period of time in which to get it out before you die. <laughs> and other yeah. than that, they just take it out because they're like, we don't want it to rupture. And if it's already infected, there's a good chance it will. So I went to the ER, told them, but it's again in a big city. So an ER in a big city is a full fucking place. And I mm -hmm. sat there and waited with like this, this awful pain uh, for, I, so I got there at like uh, two in the afternoon and I didn't get my surgery that until two that evening. Oh my God. And during that time, a lot of that was just sitting in the parking lot because uh, it's also COVID. So I'm like sitting in the parking lot of an ER, um, just like sucking in the fumes of cars going by and seeing all these other people and with their things. Breathing and yeah. waiting. And, yeah. and just hoping that it doesn't, like trying to get a, like feel for my body as much as I can to know, is it serious now is it like a bad like this is a bad pain this is new but is it just like an, an extension of what i've already been experiencing or is this something completely brand new or is this internal bleeding and I'm right collapse? Yeah. <laughs> and so there's that's a lot of time to spend where you feel um hopeless and um and powerless and then also like nobody gives a shit <laughs> so you're just like i yeah. i i'm on my own here and then you get into the actual situation where you're seeing a doctor and they're they're gonna do certain tests to determine if what you've got is appendicitis. And I was belligerent with the doctors because I was already had gone through this whole, I'd been drained. It was like being in an interrogation room. Like the same thing that police do to wear people down had been done to me like inadvertently by a system that has to deal with too many people. And I'm wondering like for you, yeah. you were in the same situation where you have something dire happening to you. You're being treated like, hey calm down which is like the worst thing to hear kind of uh -huh. calm yeah. down and wait and then you find it they're like all right now we'll see you like how do you come in with that mindset and try and get away from that yeah that's a really big hurdle and part of it is like what that really reminds me of that appendix feeling is uh a con two questions you get a lot if you reach out to the system for mental health help which is like are you holding down a job and do you have like relationships in your life? And in both cases, yes, I, yeah, I do. Um, then I go home and like physically beat myself in the head. And there's moments where I scream, like I sleep on the couch cause I'm sobbing all night. God, please take away this pain. And they're like, but you, 
but you didn't get fired yet. Like you have oh, your job. Jeez. Like, yeah. And they're like, well, I have a roster of schizophrenics. You know what I mean? Right. Who like can't maintain relationships or have their job. I'm like, well, but are there more of you? Can I talk to <laughs> someone else who takes the overflow of people like me who are just kind of fucked up? And they're like, there is just me here. Um, and that's the sad state of, I think it's true of all healthcare in this country, especially since the pandemic, of course. And it does give you the uneasy feeling that shit is unraveling and falling apart yeah. in some sectors of life, not in every sector, but the healthcare system sure is fucked. Everyone's known it for a long time, similar to like guns or whatever. It takes a lot of time for humans, large groups of humans to implement something that they may all know. Like, sure, it would be better if we did blah, blah, blah. We probably will 50 years from now, but it's going to take some time to make that shift. So it sucks right now, and I have no solve for that. It's terrible. Um, other than I was honest, you know, I took the step. It almost feels like when I came out as queer to my partner or like it's like uh, my, you know, someone in my therapy network asked well, are you a danger to yourself or others? And I finally said, and I resisted it because it entails a bunch of bullshit immediately. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and then they're like, uh, oh, and you will see any therapist, because it's a mandated reporter thing, uh, switch into this mode where they ask you they a specific set of questions. And it's lengthy, and I've been through it multiple times. And then they tell you like, uh, okay, we have to have daily check-ins now and I don't, and like you have to take time off work and I'm going to send a note to your work. Like you're off work starting now and shit and it becomes invasive. Right? So I think there's a very normal reticence to disrupt your life by saying to a mental health professional, something that you know will then trigger a series of things you have to do. Of course. Yeah. Um, even though you want to do those things, but you also just want the train to keep chugging along is always the easiest, right? Or that's what you want. Yeah, that's a really articulate way to put it. They like, yeah, you, you know that you this this can't this isn't tenable. But at the same time, it might be tenable for another couple months. Like maybe I put it off till then. <laughs> yeah, um, and I don't know. I mean, I feel like you can vouch for me on this front. There are probably times where the mask slipped. But I mask a lot, meaning like, I mean, I drank for 10 years and my partner only caught me once or twice in 10 years, like even suspected, like your breast smells like whiskey, like a handful of times in a decade. And uh, same with my mental health problems. I don't think anyone I work with, it's again, like in 25 years, there's a handful of times someone's seen an episode. Other than that, I scrupulously reflexively keep it to myself and that's just i don't think that's the same for everyone because some people are hot messes and their family knows it and you know and it's a whole thing but i very much don't want to be a hassle to people yeah. and also want to be seen as excelling and capable you know yeah it was it was a when i found out um that you'd been an alcoholic or i found out that you had some deep depression i uh, it was a complete surprise to me because you are so, uh, you're so deft at, at masking it. Like it was a, and it wasn't like a, oh, wow, he's really good at that. It's like, um, it's like a painful, you know, in a way where, Thank God. <laughs> where, where you're like almost hurt that this person felt that they needed to do that, that they like, 
that it was like, no, the most important thing is everybody else, <laughs> that it, that the world just keeps working like it does. Um, and, and fuck me. Um, and so uh, th that was a huge surprise to me. Yeah. You're, you were very good at it. Yeah. One of my classic modes I get into in an episode is like, like apologizing to the universe for taking up space. Like I'll even, I'll get a weird high pitched voice. I do. And I'll be like, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay, man. I would, I just shouldn't exist. I just shouldn't be here, man. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And like yeah. my partner being, I mean, they have their own whole side. It's tough, man. For I like <laughs> the journey is everyone has their cross to bear, but like, cause then my partner has their own issues where they're, they do the math and they're like, uh, is it my fault? Cause you have episodes around me and then you have to have a big work meeting and you'll immediately pull it together for work. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm able to do that. Yeah. I don't fully understand that, but no, you're just around me the most like, you know, it's a numbers game. And also I'm the most comfortable around you. So I think my body knows it can fall apart in some way. Um, but actually the only person who's seen a full episode was Adam Ganser, who I think, you know, and he'll agree is like, prickly sometimes yeah and in my hypersensitivity he was just saying some you know adam-esque shit like no you are objectively wrong about this pop culture thing and i literally said this is why or you reminded me of i went oh fuck me i guess okay fuck me and i started hitting myself in the head with a microphone stand over and over going fuck me fuck me fuck you fuck you and uh and he was like whoa what is going on? <laughs> and I think he's the only one that's seen me get that bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I do want to talk about your time there, but I am, I mean, I'm curious and I hope that you're willing to talk about it. What, what are the things that, mm -hmm. that you do? You, you will hit yourself in the head with your fists and with objects. Yeah. I hit myself in the head. I do learned helplessness. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please don't be mad. Please don't be mad. Um, and uh, you know, the normal, like just so sobbing for a long time. And then that fades into flat affect for a long time. Cause you're just drained and like, yeah. then weirdly calm, which always freaks people out where you're like, I'm okay. I mean, I'm not okay, but it's fine. Just leave me alone. And, uh, you know, I guess what people traditionally associate with depression are either the crying phase or the like, you know, empty phase. Um, but at first it's this really violent phase where I even go like, you know, now that it's been decades of it, I can usually say it's, it's happening. It's like the Hulk, like you should just leave. It's happening. Yeah. The emotions <laughs> like, are taking the over. The roller coaster is ratcheting the roller coaster is uh, yeah, ratcheting up the thing. And here it comes. And for me, it's highly predictable. I get like looping thoughts that are super repetitive and common and they like, blare in my head over and over some classic examples are uh you're a piece of shit um you shouldn't be here you shouldn't even be here uh and this one that so this recent episode we knew was getting really bad because i did a new thing which i haven't done before which is i started saying the loop out loud and i wasn't aware i was doing it oh um and a loop i get a lot is uh i don't know what to do i just do what they tell me to do i don't know what to do i just do what they tell me to do and uh so there's that one and then this bad one because i have this huge trauma i have this huge guilt around 
the fact that in my divorce, because I got married too young, people who know my history will know this. We got divorced quickly when I was really young. Um, and it was really toxic and shitty marriage. And one of the things that happened is we had a mutual friend write up our divorce papers, which you should never do because uh, it's a huge conflict of interest. And like they should have said no. But uh, they were a closer friend with my ex. And of course, therefore, the contract like sort of leaned that way. And uh, they had to re they had the right to reclaim our shared dogs at any point. And they left me for someone else and they were sort of in the honeymoon phase and wanted to bang a lot or whatever and asked me to keep the dog. So for a year and a half, my like solace through this in part, large part was my two dogs who I formed this really close relationship with. And then a year and a half later, after we've had not had contact in that time, she was just like, I want the dogs back. And this contract says that I can just take them. I allowed that to happen. I left the dogs at a spot and like one of the moments, hopefully when I have kids, guilt about them will take the place of this. But now <laughs> kidless, my greatest moment of shame in life is the image of my dog looking through the gate crying where you, you know, like, yeah. where are you going? What's going on? And then yeah. I never saw him again. And my brain will do this thing where it just, do you know the time lapse film strip of a fox rotting in super Of course, speed? of course. Yeah, so it'll just be him, that, but but it's my beloved dog, you know, rotting okay. over and over and over. And so I'll start hitting myself in the head and just crying like, stop, 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 please, God, please just stop. And it's like literally a compulsive, it feels compulsive. And that's another thing I'm getting tested for is OCD, because when they asked me all the OCD questions, I said, no way. Um, but then when I described my symptoms, my neuropsych was like, I think you clearly have OCD. And I was like, why? I don't, I don't think that I un left the door unlocked. I don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that if I leave a burner on, you know, the stock market will crash, which is what I, and I don't wash my hands 15 times in a row. And he said, yeah, but you have obsessions. Like one being, uh, if you ever fuck up, everyone will hate you, mm -hmm. which is equally unrealistic as the stock market will crash. If you don't lock your door, if you think about it. And then, be you have compulsions you hit yourself in the head and you don't want to and you can't help yourself i was like oh i guess i yeah okay oh is that <laughs> yeah, is that ocd all right <laughs> then hell yeah um yeah so yeah like this that kind of toxic thought of uh that you cannot get rid of of your dog um what did what did you learn yeah. here to with those toxic thoughts like what is your shield now it, is there is it easy to describe Yes, it is. And I'm so glad you asked. So let's get into the useful shit. Uh, the uh, looping thoughts thing already was sort of in tandem with depression throughout my life. And they sort of like wove like a caduceus, if you will, back and forth. Um, and so I always have looping thoughts. When I'm depressed, they're like, you're a piece of shit. When I'm not, they're just annoying mundane thoughts like... Uh, you're toxic, I'm slipping under, you're toxic, I'm slipping under, like ad nauseum for an hour, you know, but until something dislodges it. And of course, that's really obnoxious, still better than thinking you're worthless, but obnoxious. Um, so mindfulness helped with that. Meditating helped with that. Uh, caring about my body at all helped with that. Uh, getting being in touch with my body, like physical sensations. Uh, and again, all these things feel like they don't do shit 
when you start and you really, it takes a lot of emotional courage, but you listening, I know you can do it. Um, That, uh, you know, it took like a a month before I was like, uh, I was like, my looping thoughts are immune to this because they're just too loud and I need a pill or something. Um, I believed I could get to the bottom of it, but I'm like, it's not going to be just by sitting still and not, and trying not to think. And then you learn about, the more you learn about meditation, you learn that it's not about not thinking. It's about maintaining your focus in the present moment. Uh, And like I said, that separation from your thoughts and feelings. So if your brain's thinking a lot right now, uh, you're, you're watching your brain think a lot instead of experiencing it. And it sounds abstract, but it becomes a tangible skill the more you practice it. And the distance immediately does create a sort of deafening or muting effect. So like if I feel, if I have the looping thought, you're a piece of shit, man, obviously that doesn't feel great. But then if I think about, it's interesting how in the present moment I'm watching myself have this thought over and over it really feels like I'm standing in the next room hearing the thought muffled through the wall. And Hmm. that's already some relief. And it's enough relief to make the space for me to employ other skills. Because self-loathing is a part of it for me, a lot of, like there's this meditation I would break down crying every time we did it because it's something I did not know you could do. And so I think it's vital to tell people if they're in this boat. You can parent yourself and you can love yourself. Like if you're like me and you seek validation, my identity has always been against a rubric because that really works for me. Like at school, I got straight A's. In acting school, I got acting awards. I seem to have been gifted with some kind of combination of traits where I can do good in a lot of systems and I gravitate towards systems where I do good. And I tied whether I think I'm good to whether I do good in the systems or whether my partner loves me and has expressed that recently or whether my friend has, I've been of use to them in a way where I'm like, I can be confident that Soren values me because I just did this for him. You know what I mean? So like if you have that people pleasing, almost I'm worthless without outside worth flowing in uh, thing, there were thing, two things that were huge for me. Like one was when I meditated, I often thought of trying to breathe in like this golden light or whatever, and it would expunge the darkness inside me. And one of my counselors said to flip that, you are a source of infinite golden light and you breathe in the toxicity of other people and you help the overall universe by bre- ta- being willing to take some toxicity in oh. and purge it because it cannot withstand the light inside you and you emit light. I'm like, that is way better. <laughs> and then also... Um, like I never thought of it that way uh and then the concrete thing uh is just yeah if you if you can do that thing where you're looking at it 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 becomes muffled in a way where you can bring whatever tools work for you to bear you just have the space and the wherewithal to do that damn I had a really good oh oh yeah sorry so I just want to hammer home um You can love yourself, which almost sounds like philosophical, but I mean it concretely. Um, There's this great meditation I'll link in the show notes by a guy called Jack Kornfield that's like, uh, you know that 
people love you, people have loved you in your life, but also you have the capacity to put out love. And if you were your friend or someone you loved, you would love that person. Like you would not tell that person you're a piece of shit. Now, I can't help you if you're like an evil narcissist who goes around telling your friends that they're pieces of shit or you have borderline. <laughs> I feel for people with borderline. That must be difficult. Like that's different than what we're talking about. But uh, you can tell yourself <laughs> It's so hard what you've been through. You've done so many amazing things, given that you've been through that, like I'm rooting for you. You can be your own parent. You can say the kind of things to yourself that you would say to a kid who is struggling. And I'm tearing up right now because I was so unused to, it's this huge, uh, my voice might start breaking because I'm 37 and I never did that before. I never cut myself slack. I mean, never. Yeah. Um, there's a sense of relief that I cannot describe how different my life feels now. The sense of relief of like, I can just tell myself that I'm doing good enough. And can you, that's crazy powerful. Could you look back at, at the you that used to be like who you were? I mean, do you look back with, are you like brokenhearted for that person? Like, would you want, would you want to comfort that person? Yeah, definitely want to comfort. I mean, you write compassionate letters to yourself. Like I wrote a letter to myself about the Tiggy or so my dog situation in that moment, right? Like I sent yeah. thoughts through time to that moment is the idea if you're really going to go with it uh, to like a LARPing degree, um, which I do. But uh, yes, compassion, because the goal and something that I'm feeling real, more real and real is compassion for everything because life is a struggle for pretty much all beings and that's just true um and we're united by that and struggle helps us grow some struggles too much and you don't deserve it it's more than you needed to grow um but it is what it is and it is what we get and worrying about it or drawing meaning from it or building elaborate stories in your head about why you deserved that to happen or why you're so scared of that happening again that you have to comport your life to that endeavor. Like getting lost in any of those mental structures we've just seen from thousands of years of people living, it doesn't do it. You can't think your way out of it. Yeah. Um, you can only let go and accept it. And as soon as you accept that that's just the situation right now, uh, and it's, of course, it's exponentially harder the more terrible the situation is, but it is immediately better. It's like fighting the universe is impossible. The only power move is to go like, all right, whatever you want, universe, like I'm going to do my best with what I have, but obviously I can't beat the ocean. Um and it's not a worthwhile use of my time to think about how, A, maybe I could beat the ocean if I think enough, or B, it's so unfair that I can't beat the ocean. I, I, it should be, the universe should be fair in some way, or I should get this if I do this or try hard enough, or even just the general feeling I certainly get sometimes of, there's so much suffering in the world. The universe is so cruel and unfair. It's too unfair. I want to talk to someone about this, mm -hmm. right? But- you can't <laughs> like, so <laughs> even though it sounds hokey and stupid, practicing gratitude, like it's a skill to the point where you can go, like I literally do things that used to trigger me. I go, 
I'm really grateful for this experience because it allows me to practice patience. Like I'm leveling up my patience right now by practicing it. That muscle's getting stronger. I'm so grateful that this person is jerking me around and wasting my time. Their role in my story is to help me get even better at being patient. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. And it's it's uh, stuff that is woven into what Jesus said, but also what Buddha says. Like, there's true stuff that we've discovered over and over right. and over and we know is useful. And one of them is acceptance, uh, self-forgiveness, self-love, mindfulness. And the other thing is just the aspect of, great metaphor for me is, you're trying to be the sun because the sun basically has two qualities, light, which allows you just to see. So just simple awareness, like try to be present and be aware of what's going on around you right now, including inside your brain and including inside your body. Um, don't think about it. Don't tell yourself a story about it. Just note what's going on on those three planes. And then the second one is the sun also carries warmth. So like by seeing something is the idea. You honor it. Like that's why we say I feel seen. By seeing someone and being present with them and listening to them with your full consciousness, um, you're already showing compassion to them and you're being aware on some level that we're all connected. Um, so that's the other huge thing for me is that it's just like a, like I'm a drug addict, so I'll put it in those terms. It's a good drug. And people who say I get high on life sounded so stupid to me. And now I am that guy <laughs> because I was so much in my head and always writing or telling myself I'm a piece of shit or thinking all the time about the future or the past. One of my main parts is the futurist, uh, who I cast as Reginald Barkley from Star Trek Voyager because he's addicted to the holodeck. So I have a part that's addicted to just thinking about then what will happen, then what will happen. What will it feel like on Friday when I'm doing that thing? Imagine what it'll feel like. Is that rewarding enough or should you reschedule it for something else? You know, And uh, the ability to be present, which I have developed at great expense and effort, and I thought I could never develop. So if you don't have hope that you can, let me say that I'm someone who can't could, it turned out. Um, the first couple times I experienced it, it felt like an acid trip for a moment. Because acid, if you haven't done it, listener, really makes you focus and be super <laughs> present. And that's what it felt like. To just actually look at a tree or focus on the idea of warmth on my skin from the sun. And how long is that window? Oh, it started as mere fleeting moments of just a space between two intrusive thoughts. Not even a feeling of being present. And now... After, I'd say, six months of practice, it's expanded to like 30 seconds, 45 seconds at a time before I consciously notice that I'm in my head again. But then I can gently guide myself back to focusing on the present again. And like I can string together a whole walking of the dog being present. Wow. And it feels like a methadone drip. Like it's awesome. <laughs> and it will probably wear off or like become normal again after a while. It's because I've deprived myself of the present moment for so long. And my heart does break for that because it actually feels like lost time. I was trying to execute a plan right. instead of enjoying the miracle of life for about 25 years and being, it's important to plan, but if you only plan, you're not like doing the thing. And that is important to do. It's like, be there for the thing. I'm someone who wasn't doing that. Doing it's very powerful. And it gave me a new motto that I'm sure therapists would not approve of, which is smoke less, get higher. Cause I also <laughs> <laughs> do that with weed. And it's like, um, moderation is not deprivation. 
I have really bad FOMO. I have been always acutely aware that I only get one life and I want to wring the marrow from the bones of life. But you know what? The show is what it is. Everyone gets a unique life. That's your show. It's completely special because only you got it. No one else's is better or worse. It's just crazy different because everyone gets a different one. And if you watch the show and enjoy the show, that's all you can do. And it's fun. I have found it's fun. And like, you can't get there by being like, well, if I take this drug every, every day that makes me feel chemicals that make me feel happy, maybe I'll stay in this happy place. You have to figure it out the hard way. Many of us do. But I do believe that most people get to the end of the road and they figure out, you know, in their middle or late age, something that you can't believe when you're young, which is that, you know what? Moderation uh, in pretty much all things actually in way not just content and calm, but like <laughs> I get higher more <laughs> on life. Like I anything I do do. Like I would play video games nonstop because I equated it with rest. And uh, as a special treat, sometimes treat, which I would hate hearing as a kid who just like, give me all the candy. More candy is more fun is better life. Um, no, doing stuff every once in a while really it juices helps. it. Yeah. It's like a treat. Like yeah. everything's like a little treat. Yeah. Uh, you, I, I mean, I, it's, it's interesting to hear that you were so single-mindedly set on like, this is the trajectory that I need to be on if for happiness. Uh, and everything else is just sort of like, it's just white noise around me. Like there's, that's, it feels like it's such a double down that you're also a writer because like the real curse of being a writer is that you, you're not experiencing a single moment without thinking about how do I articulate this? Like, how could I put this in something? Is this a thing that I can You're use? an observer already. Yeah, yeah. You're sidelined by, by your own history, basically by you, by choice. I mean, you're saying, no, I will, I did how I feel about this doesn't matter. How could I like, what does this actually mean? Like what <laughs> trying to like get past yeah. the, the emotion of it. And so I, I like you coming back from that even I think is, it's, it feels so insurmountable and it's it's really nice to hear. Well, I think it's interesting. It's probably a natural outgrowth of why I will, first was an actor for a big stretch and now mostly a writer. It's like heart, car, like chicken or egg uh, is because I felt the FOMO so strong from an early age of like, I don't want to pick one job. I want to spend my life imagining what it would be like to be every different kind of person right. so that I can feel all the ice cream flavors. And it's like, yeah, you do. And you don't, I love being a writer. I'm glad I am, but it's also important to live your own life. You don't, you can't suck the marrow out of someone else's bones. You can imagine it, but it is not the same. And it's, and I just have to accept that I won't actually get to be a cowboy and an astronaut and a Marine biologist. I will only get to be a writer and my own, plus my own life, whatever my lived experience is, right? <laughs> uh, and that's big too. Yeah, I, I think back to when I wanted to be a writer and it, it was really born from, well, you know, there's the ego of it. There's like, you want people to like experience the same things you felt. But I would, when I was a child, I would get sad at night and I would cry at night. And at the end of it, I would be like, what the... Like, what was that all for? <laughs> like, it didn't mean anything in the end. And so I was like, yeah. no, I have to hold on to that. I, there's like, whatever these snowflakes of sadness are that fall into my hand, like, I have to figure out what it is real quick and draw it before it melts. You know, like, that was, it was like mm -hmm. trying to map these emotions in a way that like made them 
uh, more permanent and and necessary than just like feeling it and then it's gone. Yeah, especially because sadness feels important. And I think the reason it feels important is because we associate it with personal growth, which is important. Yeah. And uh, I think that's stories have a bunch of uses, but one is to try and experience sadness in a safe way where you didn't have to actually experience it, but you can still learn the lesson or the wisdom yeah. from someone else's suffering, <laughs> <laughs> which I do think is a cool thing about storytelling. Oh, we're really building shortcuts for each other. We are, but it's so hard because there's just some stuff that you won't believe until you it happens to you. And then you go, Oh, they were right. Like all the people who've lived before me were right. Like, um, it happened recently for me with, I was talking to Daniel on the phone and I, of course, sometimes, uh, assume that he has the thing I want or that like, I mean, he's won Emmys and shit. I'm like, yeah. he must feel the thing I'm chasing. Good for him. And I, you know, like congratulated him and he shared, well, I don't want to hear too much of what he shared, but you know, he shared that he's in the middle of his journey. Like, obviously he would strive to have his own show that he crafted, not just right for someone else's show. And I was like, oh, right. That's what I want too. Oh yeah. The guy who's above you still feels the same. Yeah. He wants to get above that. I'm like, oh yeah. And I already knew that from stories and culture and yet I <laughs> forgot it. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I, so we, we, I want to get back to this facility and like you, the things that you did there, I, they were <laughs> helpful. Um, but I also want to know the stuff that like the, the tools that they gave you and you looked at and you played with for a second and you were like, no, this fucking isn't for me. And just sort of threw aside, like it just wasn't going to be for you. Yeah. Uh, generalized group therapy, which I only because, uh, I think for many people, and it's part of the reason I do this show uh, normalization and finding out you're not alone is huge. It was huge for me, but I already did it. And that sounds like weird, but it's true. Um, I went through AA and I know that I'm not alone. And I do have in my head the perspective that there's so many humans struggling together. So as I said, there was this feeling of like, I've already beaten this level. I desperately need <laughs> more information soon. Like the class needs to rise to my level and give me the information at where I'm at in my therapy journey. Um, so groups sometimes felt like uh, I was observing and hoping like, oh yeah, I hope they get a lot out of this. I already know how to share my feelings. And when they say stuff like, you know, other people feel that way, I'm like, yeah, no, I know. Uh, I'm blessed to have a community like in our small beans discord server, we have a channel for mental health support and I'm like, I know that, um, I still need more help than that. Yeah. So that was that. And then, uh, there was movement class and, I, to me that was identical. In some cases, the exercises were identical to things I did in theater school that were just like. Uh, I remember one where they were like, okay, go on stage in front of the rest of the class. Okay, now without words, just grunts or whatever. You Let's say your mother was a, a fairy and your or, or a goblin, you choose, and your father was either a fox or an elephant, you choose. Now walk across the stage or move across the stage in a way where we can guess what. Yeah, that's very theatery shit. And I... It's interesting for developing performing skills. I actually think it has validity there. But in the movement segment, a lady would just lead us through shit like that. And then she'd say, like, how does that make you feel about 
the fact that you think you're a worthless piece of shit. And I'm like, nothing. It feels unrelated to that. <laughs> um, but hopefully that works for someone. <laughs> so that felt like nothing to me. And then uh, ACT was like a smash and grab one and done. And so was defusion. So ACT is acceptance and compassion therapy. And like I said, that's where I had the massive revelation that I'm allowed to tell myself that I'm not worthless mm -hmm. as, and I can even project the idea of like a parent character that is me, but isn't me comforting me and telling me that it's going to be okay. And it seems like that wouldn't work, but it does, it works. <laughs> and, um, and then I, but then everything else, like for example, writing the letter, everything after it felt like busy work. And I think that's cause I'm a quick study and a good learner. There were a lot of sessions where, they shared a worksheet at the top of the class and then the class was two hours long, but I read through the worksheet myself and went, that's brilliant. This totally makes sense. I could go home now and practice this because mm -hmm. I'm also self-motivated about practicing. Mm -hmm. And I know a reason to go to the gym is to force you to practice. Um, one of my good traits is I don't really need that because I am a workaholic. So, uh, I can go be alone and you can trust me. I'll be doing the thing. So there were a lot of times where just my unique personal journey was that I would get the information and be like, I'm done with you now. I just needed the textbook. Like you could have just given me the textbook recommendation and I could go do it. So for example, towards the end of the six weeks, it became apparent at group that I had read the whole book, the Richard Schwartz book, No Bad Parts, because internal family systems is really working for me. And people were like blown away <laughs> that in my six weeks off, I read a book and I was blown away only because I thought you were desperately trying to not kill yourself. Right. You can't read a book in the face of that. I did not say that because that is not a shared and generous way to be in group. But part of me feels that way. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, of course, I'm going to do the things. I'm desperate here. I've got to do the things. So that made me sometimes glaze over towards the latter half of some sessions and then i will say defusion was a smash and grab because there was like one worksheet where it gives you a bunch of techniques of how to defuse one is junk mail you get tons of mail a lot of it is junk mail if you have a thought don't forget to ask yourself is this important useful information or is this just junk mail and it's not bad that it's junk mail but what do you do with junk mail you know, even if it's very loud, even if it has a sticker on the front that says you could win a million dollars, but you have to do this or you're a piece of shit exclamation point open to read more. You can go that's junk mail and throw it away. Um, so that was useful t to me. And then the one I said about I am sad, I feel sad. I noticed that I feel sad. And then I was done with that. Like we did it for the whole six weeks. And I was like the first day I learned all the things and that was enough. Um, but then internal family systems. Oh, boy. Like. Parts work, they're synonymous. Every week I was waiting for that group because those were alone, those were individual. And it's like an interview where you ask like feelings and voices to step forward and you interview them and get to know them and you end up casting them physically like what they look like and you play out a little scene with them. And it takes a lot of, I think, emotional vulnerability for a lot of people because like if you're not a performer, it seems dumb, right? Like I imagine people feel embarrassed at the start yeah. uh, because you can just, you can go like they're saying this or you can act it out. 
and do like a character voice and shit. Guess which one I did? Um, <laughs> of course, I, I like went full LARP ham, like performer mode with no embarrassment, which I think allowed me to get quickly to and every session. And I, 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 in my experience, this is a good sign. Every session, dude. The last 15 minutes, I could barely talk. I was crying so hard, but in a good way now instead of a bad way. Like, um, you know, like, yeah. well, what are you doing with the little German boy in Lederhosen who represents the fact that you'll never you'll never have your dad's approval? I'm taking him for a hike in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, you know, stuff like that. And uh, so I ended up. And I will say in the show notes at patreon.com slash small beans, uh, this will this will be a public episode, so you don't need to be a patron to access. There will be a link to a Google folder where I'm putting all the worksheets that I got and all the letters that I wrote and my thing that I did that I found the most useful of all, which they did not ask me to do, but I recommend it, um, is, you know, after each of these interviews, I wrote down a dossier, like a Dungeons and Dragons style, or like a stats sheet on that part and cast it. Um, so because my main pop culture thing in life is Star Trek, all my parts are Star Trek characters. And the main three that I have to interact with on a daily basis are Quark, Seven of Nine, and Barkley. And, you know, they represent like... Uh, Quark is my hustle and my need. Like I want the moon. I mean, in that show, he literally wants to buy a moon. I want to be rich and famous and have everyone love my stories and say that my stories change their lives, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, Barkley, like I said, addicted to the future, seven of nine addicted to efficiency. Are we using the time well enough? Are you doing enough? You got to go faster, blah, blah, blah. So the idea is, but you could do it with anything. Also, they don't have to be consistent. My partner's done this and like one is an orca and one is Gandalf and now they're <laughs> going to get a tattoo of Gandalf riding an orca because they because that's now meaningful to them. Um, but I did all Star Trek characters and I did a full on binder with like 20 some characters and all. Yeah, did you tell her that. she's doing it wrong because they don't there's not enough uniformity? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. So I don't even know if that's what I'm supposed to do because I will say. So like I free for, I think it was the arbiter I call it. So the part of me that is like, but that's not fair. The universe should be fair. It should be a meritocracy. It's not fair. It's not fair. You, like I put in this work, you should reciprocate. Uh, or I was nice to you. You have to be nice back. That's what you owe me. So that part I call the arbiter. And he started as like an Ichabod Crane type character, just sort of organically. But then I forced him to become Odo because I want all mine to be Star right. Trek. That's just what I'm doing. Like I'm forcing my thing to be Star Trek. You listening do not have to do that. But I do recommend checking out the booklet that I made because i that's the most useful thing I've found is every day I call a conference in the conference room from the enterprise from TNG. My true self is represented by captain Janeway who gets shit done in a calm manner and Guinan from TNG who is only, only exists to listen and observe the universe and be compassionate and loving. Um, so they're sort of the yin yang of what I consider my true self, the warp core, of the ship we're in is my breath, the powers, everything. And like we have a meeting and I ask what crewmen are loud today or have things to say. And I let them say what they need to say. And then I tell them what we're going to do. But I also tell them that like, I super appreciate that they're at their post doing what they need to do. And then it's, so you develop your own weird ritual. Then they all say the thing from the end of the labyrinth, they'll go, we'll be here. Should you need us? And then they all step away 
and then I decide what my energy level is going to be for the day. Like, so I take this from Voyager. They're trying to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. So I'll be like, okay, so let's resume course warp four to the Alpha Quadrant. That means I'm not going to feel stressed. Like I'm going to go at a four out of 10. But then sometimes you'll be like, no, I got a lot of shit to get done today. I'm going to go warp 10 today. But knowing consciously that you're driving yourself hard, you know, allows you to balance that out later. Jesus, that's fascinating. So that's the little play I do every morning. <laughs> wow. And so everybody is yeah. there and you account for everybody. And when you give them time to speak, are you? do you ever feel like what you're doing is is giving credit to something that that doesn't deserve your attention. Do you know what I mean? Like, are you, when you're like, you're like, who does anybody want to speak? Mm. Give me right now. If you have something toxic to say to me, say it. Well, that's what's super hard is you, you treat them. I mean, in the, in the current methodology, but all humans are fallible. Maybe parts work will evolve over time. It's relatively new, but what I learned and what's working for me so far is the goal is to have a loving, almost parental relationship with all of them. Like a parent doesn't always indulge their child, but they're always rooting for the child. And the logic behind that is that all our parts are safety mechanisms, pretty much all. And there's a reason they developed and they developed because they want us to survive or they thought they were contributing to the situation in a helpful way. Mm -hmm. For example, like the addict in me, Tom Paris from Voyager, uh, <laughs> thought alcohol would help the looping thoughts end. And even though they were wrong, they were trying to help. Yeah. Everyone's trying to help. Gold Ducat, my part that tells me I'm a worthless piece of shit, he's trying to restore the honor of the Cardassian Empire, i.e. he thinks the harder he pushes me, the more likely I am to achieve my uh, career goal. And he was told early in my life that that was the goal is now what we're trying to do. So you literally, so the mundane way of thinking about it, I think would be, you're just doing a Rolodex of all your thoughts that are the most common in your mental patterns and putting them in buckets, right? You're just categorizing your thoughts, yeah. but it is easier to work with them as a character. So I'll be like, well, Gul Dukat, uh, I see that and I honor that. And you've been at that post for a long time. That must be tiring. Um, I also, you haven't really talked to these parts or like, did you, were you aware it's having these deleterious side effects? Um, if we still let you take control sometimes and know that like, it is important to push ourselves sometimes, that's an important job. We're not trying to silence or stifle you. You have a seat at the table. But if we do that all the time, the ship will explode. So we're not going to do that. Is that okay? Like, that's yeah. literally what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And then you imagine the part being like, okay, well, thank you for hearing me. You got it, boss. And they go back to work. Fascinating. Yeah, I I think about, I mean, all these are essentially boiled down to like tools that help you get a little, even just a tiny bit of distance from these things that would otherwise be so overwhelming that they take control, right? It's just inserting distance and then telling your, getting in the habit of telling yourself helpful stories that have good outcomes instead of unhelpful stories yeah. that have unhelpful outcomes. Oh. So like thinking, I have a catastrophizer, the holographic doctor, uh, who will go, oh dear me, you know, we have, this is horrible if we drop the ball here. And then there's another good defusion practice where you go, 
okay, let's say we drop the ball or what's the worst case scenario. And if you play it out, especially if you're having a lot of anxiety around something about work or something, yeah, you won't get fired. Or like in most cases, the worst case scenario, you're like, okay, well that doesn't really deserve the amount of anxiety I'm giving it. And then it's also important to follow up by imagining the best case scenario, which I never used to do. And now I do reflexively. Oh. What if it goes really, really well? What would happen? <laughs> and then you tell yourself, well, it'll probably be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And then you do the thing. <laughs> so my children are, you, you learn very quickly with children that they, they suffer with a lot of this in a very different way, but like their emotions are so big and so unwieldy that like they can't control any of this either. They have intrusive thoughts. They, they sit and, and dwell in sadness for long periods of time. And like, they don't, there are these things that take over, take them over that they have no control over. And like trying to, trying to give them the tools along the way to be like, no, listen, this is, this is how we qualify what a real disaster is. Like, these are the things you need to do. And like the things that I tell my son are things that I used that are like, as I was growing up and, and some of them have no bearing on his life. Like one is like an avalanche safety thing that I learned once, which was like, if you're in an avalanche, <laughs> you are, you're, what you want to do is get your hands as close to your face as possible because at the last second when you feel it slow, you need to push out and that would give you like a little pocket of air. And all you're trying to do in that, in that moment is like give yourself a space to breathe so that you can solve all the other problems. And, and Ronan's like, great, there's my nightmare for <laughs> F for the next four years. Yeah, he was like, what the fuck's an avalanche? I've never even seen snow. <laughs> like, oh yeah, all right. Yeah. Um, uh, let's think of something else for you. And he's, and <laughs> yeah, the mental health challenge version of that, by the way, which is also a trope and joke. So I'm sure you're aware of it is your parent will have some kind of mental health challenge and you'll be like, that was tough for me growing up. I will never become that exact thing when I, <laughs> when I'm in middle age. Oh, surprise. I am exactly yeah. that. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, it's like a magic trick. You never it really sneaks up on you. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, are there are there other things um, that you think would be helpful? I, I mean, I want to talk to you a little bit about like little details about the place as well. But are there other uh, bigger macro things that you th think people would find helpful that you want to discuss that we haven't touched on yet? No. Okay. You've done a phenomenal job. Okay. And good. I have also pushed forward the information I wanted to push forward. <laughs> so like, yeah, I think if you're just listening to this because it's interesting to you, great. If you really are struggling, I urge you to check out the folder that I'm going to set up. But yeah, good. that's that's the gist of it. Okay. Now, I have questions that I, I don't know that these will lead to anything, but I'm fascinated by it because these are places that are that are locked doors to ordinary people. And so I would, genuinely, I'm curious. That's right. Um, you are you living with somebody? Is there somebody in your room with you or you, do you have a roommate? Oh no. So it, so I commuted in and out. Oh, you every go day. every day. And then that's what up. makes it a, that's what makes it partial hospitalization. Yeah. So, okay. So they aren't controlling. So yeah, they did a test, not a test, a questionnaire of like, how much are, do you have a plan to commit suicide? Have you imagined the note you would leave? <laughs> also, do you live alone? Yeah. Are there a lot of triggers in your home? And they eventually determined that the right course for me was partial uh, and that I could be trusted for my partner to just watch me. And are there, so there are day students and boarding students essentially. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And is there, do you feel that there's a breakdown between those people? Like that there's, there's a different, in ter- I assume you guys have some free time in which you, you talk to each other and stuff. Is Does it seem like there are factions built by the people who are there, fully committed, who are there every single day, every single night, and those who are living a different experience and just like coming in each day and then leaving? No, much more across issue lines it like people quickly glom onto whatever your issue is or if your trauma is similar meaning the people who felt like they were trapped in golden handcuffs in hollow careers just had a lot to talk about right and uh, that was a rude awakening for me moving to the bay too because when i was in la part of why aa was so phenomenal i went to the aa meeting in hollywood and it you know like uh, russell brand was there and nick thune was there and shit and it was funny. I was like, uh, and I turned to the guy next to me. Uh, Hi, I'm Michael. What do you do? Oh, I'm a line producer on, you know, the office was running at the time. Oh, I work at Cracked. Oh, I know Crack. I was like, <laughs> wow, what a magical place AA is where it's so welcoming and so easy to immediately just feel like you're part of the group. And it didn't occur to me at all that that would only happen in Hollywood, California. <laughs> so like when I moved to the Bay and joined AA, Everyone was immediately like talking about programming. And I was like, I feel very lonely here. Yeah. <laughs> this is a different AA experience. So yeah, everyone was just like, oh, you work at Google. I work at Google. Let's talk about that. Um, and I definitely bonded with the people who are like, I'm just violently sad sometimes. And I always have been. And I only kind of understand why. And I want it to stop, which is a lot of people. There were enough of us too oh, to form a little faction. What a dangerous <laughs> knowledge that is that AA, depending on where you live, could very much just be a networking event. Networking, at least to the degree <laughs> where if you don't do the job that everyone does, it will be harder for you to make friends. Yeah. Right. That's just human, unfortunately. Um, and then I wanted to ask you what it's like like it it, you essentially had a pe right like you have like this period of time where you're up on your feet and doing stuff is that a big integral part of this whole program or is it like that's very very small uh out of 20 hours a week it's an hour a week and i don't mean to be ageist myself but i'm aware that ageism exists in our society. So through that lens, I say it was run by a very, very old woman who was retired. And this is like the one thing she does. So I don't even feel like they considered it the oh. top priority intervention, you know? Wow. I'm fascinated. That's surprising it was the top to of the me. week every week. It feels yeah. like something that you, they'd want to do every single day because I would, in my very bare bones understanding of depression, a lot of it is sed- being sedentary. It's like, and that's contributing to it. It feels like just going for a walk or like being on your feet helps. Totally. Uh, and it is different for everyone, I'm sure. I think for others, it's even more pronounced probably. Uh, like I know Dave Chappelle famously said that he had really dark depressions and now he's addicted to working out and is yoked or he still smokes on stage. I don't know how that works, but (laughs) anyway, apparently it banished his depression. And I've heard that from, you know, other people as well. And like quote unquote civilians. Uh, and so I definitely, for me, it's more an issue of getting in touch with my body at all, uh, makes me 
realize that my body is a sensory organ and that I'm currently receiving sensory information and I can choose to focus on that. And nowadays, sometimes that is enough to push a looping thought out of my head. It's like, instead mm. of thinking of the song over and over, uh, realize that there's, I think it's like 85% of what we see is not encoded into memory. Like there's a staggering amount of stimulus coming across your desk right now. Maybe focus on that. Um, and that's always true. If, especially if you include your thoughts, your own thoughts and feelings, like that's, you know, there's a lot of information, uh, and just sort of keeping your eye on the ball, like minority report yeah. style. And, and what about free time? Do you guys, what, it, how much free time throughout the day are you getting to just talk to other people and do your own thing? Uh, pretty much there's like four hours a day in a row consecutively of intensely doing shit. And then the rest of your day is free. And you know, that's. It was a measured sacrifice on my part because I came to the program at a point of extreme burnout already, and I really wanted the rest. I wanted what I've done in the past, which is I wanted six weeks off of just playing video games, hiking around, going camping, relaxing. Um, and I sacrificed that time for my future children is the main impetus. Uh, and it was worth it because the skills I learned are immediately incredibly useful. But... The rest of the time, I really didn't recharge. I really worked the skills eight hours a day, seven days a week during that six week period. And so I'm not really recharged, but I have the skills and now I recharge a bit each day. Like it allowed me to develop, you know, a moderation relationship where I probably won't get to burnout level because I have better boundaries and I guard against it. And I've divorced myself from the myth that the more hours I put in, the more likely I am to sell a screenplay because it's not really the factor that determines it. And I already knew that, but it took a long time to live by that. Um, and so a lot of that time, it's totally, it's totally um, whatever level of interaction people want. So some patients, like I said, there was a patient who had maybe the most traumatic experience, like history I've ever heard of. He was ultimately like... Uh, I don't, I get, uh, I guess I shouldn't say mutilated and left for dead on the side of the road and like, shouldn't have survived, miraculously survived. Like a thing where you hear it and you're like, man, movies are true. Like stuff from horror movies does happen to people. That's crazy to think about. Right. And this guy's lived through that. And the main reason he's at the program is he's like, no, I know I have value. I know I didn't deserve it. I know the people are just wrong. Um, but I just can't stop remembering right. vividly the shit happening to me, you know, and that in and of itself is enough. And like, he didn't even want to share his name and he didn't talk to anyone and that's fine. Yeah. Um, and then there were other people who immediately shared just their first name, but also their phone number and like texted. And then there were people who hung out and chatted. Okay. So the full range, everyone's very gentle and doing whatever they want. In fact, interesting for me was the people who really honored their depression, meaning like there was this one person who almost the whole time was like, they're like, and do you want to process anything today? Not really. And do you want to discuss like how you're feeling about that? No, I don't really feel like sharing today. And they were silent for like 80% of the program. And I wonder if they were just paying for some time off work because this was one of the rich Google people. But I was also, I also admired that I was like, I could never, because I'm already coming in thinking, because it's part of the reason I'm there, uh, is this issue. 
um, how can I ace this program? Right. Or I want my therapist to see that I'm putting in the work and being a really good patient. How can this person just sit there after they paid to be here and go, I don't care. I don't, I'm just tired today. So I'm just going to nap. Oh, while the session. Goes. They're going to get a bad grade. Like, We're not supposed to do that. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? Kick me out? Give me a bad grade. Like I'm paying to be here. I'm like, damn. In a way, I can't wrap my head around that impetus, but in another way, very yeah. like a hat tip to wow. you, madam. <laughs> yeah, I ask about free time because I could see it going either way for you, where you are a very social person. I think that you like the dynamics of being in a group of people and just talking candidly for long periods of time. But also, you're in a place where you your your mindset is, I'm going to be doing the work because I'm wasting time. Like, I'm here wasting time. And... Yeah. Will I, like, I, I could see it. I, I'm very curious, like, when you got there, when you had that free time, were you angry about it? Or was that actually like, good, now I can meet people? Um, A lot of it was, now I can continue reading the book or practicing the skills. I was really thinking of it like a dojo experience. And I also have to give honor to and admit that I was in touch with the part of myself that because everyone who has a self-loathing part pretty much has an egotist part as well. So I had a part that's like, I'm crushing this. These <laughs> fools. I'm so far ahead of them on healing my soul. Their souls look like shit next to my soul at this point. <laughs> so there was that part. So um, and also something I'm learning more is I don't. So part of this whole thing was I was also getting, I was busy sometimes getting a full neuropsych assessment, assessment, which is a whole different thing unrelated to this program where you do all these cognitive tests and it's to help determine what spectra you're on in terms of OCD, autism, and other kinds of neurodivergence like that. Um, so I was doing those and those sessions are like five hours long. And something I learned about myself also is that for better or worse, I ha I'm someone who's capable of stimulus overload when I am present, I'm extremely present. So I have a great capacity to feel sad, but also happy and grateful. Um, but that's also draining. I'm someone who's really on, really engaged, and it's draining, and I just need alone time. And I used to try to figure out what was wrong with me that I need alone time every day, or worry that I'd be lonely because if I don't invest enough time in my friendships, my friends will forget I exist. Um, and so some of it, some of the practice was consciously resting. Uh, and doing nothing, but not much because I just find that difficult. So a lot of it was writing up my Star Trek profiles, literally running the interviews myself, which I, which my therapist explicitly told me not to do. So I'm going rogue there. Oh, this is huge. I suddenly feel adult enough to do whatever I want, meaning like the program is for me and I paid for it. So I'm going to do whatever I want. Like they would in the past, I am such a rule follower. That if they said like, and don't practice this outside of session time, I would feel like handcuffed, like I can't do that. But after a few of these getting to know your parts sessions, even though my therapist was like, by the way, you can't do this to yourself. You need an administrator to do it responsibly. I went home and interviewed like eight more parts and it worked <laughs> fine. <laughs> you know, so I was doing stuff like that as well. <laughs> the the exact thing that happens in horror movies where they're like oh and don't touch this hand when no one is around and then someone will just go touch this fucking <laughs> right. dead hand and they're like oh no I'm imagining like 
Yeah, my body starts writhing and all my parts split off and become sentient. <laughs> no, you shouldn't have done it alone. <laughs> well, I'm I'm so happy for you, Michael. And uh, I'm very, very, Thank you, dude. very grateful that you asked me to uh, to do this one with you and this podcast with you and to just to talk to you because we also don't talk a ton anymore either. Yeah, man. Um, and as I've said, I I have anxiety around that or like asking you and Daniel and a couple other people, but the listeners won't know who they are. So I just won't mention them um, to be in the wedding party in on my inside. I'm like, or have we not hung out in long enough that you forgot I exist? <laughs> like I would believe that too. Is it, is this really surprising that I even consider you a friend? Um, but I do, <laughs> um, I consider you just, uh, you know, a person that I'm so lucky to have in my life, and I hope I always do. Um, so thank you for doing this. Uh, and I'm happy to say that I'm able to experience that gratitude more fully and just realize what a gift it is to know you, man. So thank you much. Thank you. I love you, buddy. Love you, too. Uh, you want to shout out QQ real quick? Sure. And then we can get out of yeah, here? Yeah, if you want to find anything that I do, I have a podcast with Dan O'Brien called Quick Question with Soren and Dan. Um, you can... Watch American Dad on TBS on Mondays, or you can follow me on Twitter at Soren underscore LTD. And uh, that's it. All right, y'all. Hope it helped. Thanks for listening. Bye.